And we saw that Jesus had authority over death when he raised the widow's dead son. And we've also seen that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. These are all things that only God can do. Today, we come to chapter 8, and we'll begin with Jesus' power to control nature. But first, let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege, what a joy it is that we can come together and worship you today. The stories in our passage, Father, may be very familiar to us. Help us to see past the familiarity. Help us to go deeper today into your word. Would you reveal yourself to us through your scripture? And would you show each of us exactly what we need in order to be strengthened, to be reassured, and to be better equipped to serve you? All to your glory, mighty God, all to your glory. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, and we'll start reading in verse 22. Luke 8, verse 22. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came up to Jesus and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? But they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Now, this same account is given in Matthew chapter 8 and in Mark chapter 5. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly why um, they're getting in this boat and going to the other side of the lake. Um, But there are a couple of reasons that that we can find um, if we look at Mark. And one of those reasons is to get away from the crowds. You see, Jesus had just spent a considerable amount of time preaching and teaching to large crowds. And he was tired. He was worn out. He needed some alone time. And so he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's get in a boat, and that way the crowd can't follow us. There were another, a couple of other reasons that Jesus wanted to go to the other side. One was because he knew he had a divine appointment in the middle of the lake. And he had another divine appointment on the other side of the lake. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Now, um, so what about this lake, the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Kinnereth? Are storms of this magnitude really possible in this place? Well, yes. There's a very unique geography and a very unique meteorology that occurs in this small basin where the the Sea of Galilee sits. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It sits at about 680 feet below sea level. On the west side of the lake 
are rolling hills that rise up to about 2,000 feet in elevation. But uh, just 30 miles to the west is, this, is the Mediterranean Sea. And so you get these sea winds that blow in off the Mediterranean and right down into this little basin. To the east are the Golan Heights, a plateau that rises uh, to about 3,000 feet. And from the east, you get these hot desert winds, these Sirocco's that blow in right down into this little basin again. To the north are mountains, the, the mountains of southern Syria, Mount Hermon, uh, mountains that are over 10,000 feet high. And so you get the Chinook winds that blow down off the mountains, again, right into this little basin. So violent storms are common because of this unique mixture of terrain and winds. Hurricane-level winds can develop that churn and spin and twist. No wonder even experienced fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John are terrified. So who were all these disciples? <clears throat> now surely included in the 12 um, were those who were destined to become apostles. But there are others. Mark tells us that there are actually several bo boats that go along. So there's some kind of a crowd, um, probably 50 or 60 people that are going along. Now the term disciple actually means learner or student, one who is following a teacher in order to gain understanding or knowledge. So these are the same folks though that Jesus is willing to explain his parables to. They've separated themselves from the, from the big crowds. They want to understand. But as individuals, their faith covers a fairly broad spectrum. So don't confuse disciple here with true believer. Some may have actually already become believers, and some were probably well on their way, but there are probably some that would never really trust Jesus. All right, so we've got a very tired Jesus, but how could he sleep through such a storm? Well, the Son of God could because there's nothing that can ruffle him, nothing that can concern him, nothing that can cause him to worry. He's sovereign over everything. Jesus needed no preparation to deal with this storm. He knew it was coming, and he knew, it, knew that at the right time, at the right moment, he would exercise his sovereign, divine, creative power. He is the calm in the storm. There's chaos everywhere. There's pandemonium. Experienced fishermen are sure they're about to die. And Jesus is sound asleep in perfect peace. In verse 24, it says, They came to him, to Jesus, and they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. They knew the lake. They knew the level of, the storm, of storm that they could survive, and they knew they were about to die. In a mixture of hopelessness and hope, in a mixture of terror and faith, in a mixture of panic and trust, they turned to Jesus. They knew that he had power over disease. They'd seen that. They knew that he could heal people. They'd seen that. 
He'd healed the blind, the deaf, the crippled. And they even knew he had power over death. But did he have power over a storm, over the wind and the waves? Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Why? Because they can't. These disciples knew that Jesus could handle a lot, but could he handle a storm? They really didn't know. They didn't have the faith to believe, but they didn't have anywhere else to turn. These men are desperate. There's no human resource for them to turn to. And that's usually when we turn to the Lord, right? And it's a good thing to come to him in the storm. It's okay to come to him in desperation. When the need is great, that gives him the opportunity to display his power. In fact, there are times when he creates the desperation. Certainly, it always occurs within his divine purpose. And very often, that purpose is to bring us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our human resources. So, and that's so that we can trust in him, so that we can cast our cares on him and find that his deliverance is sufficient. Finally, Jesus responds. He got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. Mark gives us his exact words. He says, peace, be still. Don't you just love that? There's no histrionics, there's no theatrics. He didn't have to meditate or summon up the power. He didn't even have to pray. With no effort, he just woke up and said, shh, be still. And the wind and the sea recognized the voice of their creator and they responded the same way the sickness responded in the centurion's servant when he rebuked it. The same way death responded when Jesus spoke to the widow's dead son. The wind and the waves stopped immediately. Now, don't let anyone cast doubt on this miracle by saying, well, you know, winds can come up really fast and they can die down really fast. Well, maybe that's true of wind, but it's not true of waves. Waves last for hours, even when the wind stops. But in this case, listen to it. He rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. The wind stopped immediately and the waves flattened out immediately. It was dead still. It became calm. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, where is your faith? Now, Jesus knows that they have faith in him, that they know him. What he's asking here is, where's your faith in these circumstances? He noticed what the storm had revealed about their faith. It didn't show up. There's no way, though, that they could have expected him to do what he did. But maybe, just maybe, they could have at least considered that since Jesus was right there with them, that nothing could really harm them. Shouldn't it have counted for something that Jesus was in the boat with them? Where is your faith? 
And they had to cut to the quick. They had to be embarrassing. They must have been ashamed. We saw him raise the dead. We've seen him heal many, many people. How did we not trust him? Now, to be fair to the disciples, the storm was on a much larger scale than just one dead guy or, you know, a few sick people. Um, and there was something else that was going on. There was a personal component to this. This is the first time that a miracle involved the disciples directly, personally. Before it was, oh, hey, he healed that blind man. Wasn't that neat? Oh, that deaf man can hear now. Wow. Whoa, he raised that dead guy. That's really powerful. But it wasn't them. Now their lives are at stake. It's one thing to know that he's done wonderful, miraculous things for others. It's another to believe that he can and will save you when you're gasping for air as your boat's about to sink that becomes a little more difficult. So the disciples got a lesson that day in trusting the Lord in the most deadly of storms. They were moved to another level of faith. Now, their faith wasn't perfected yet. There were going to be plenty of times in the future where their faith was going to show itself to be shallow and weak. There was still going to be room to grow. For some of them, this was enough. They saw the proof. They saw that Jesus could handle the storm. The storm allowed Jesus to display his power, to display his deity, to demonstrate that he is God the creator. And that's important for these Jewish disciples to understand. And it's important for us as well. You see, the promises of the Old Testament are that the Messiah was going to come with a twofold mission. He was going to redeem his people and redeem his planet. They expected the Messiah to reverse the curse, the curse that was on mankind and the curse that was on the earth. The Messiah would then be able to bring about the, the new kingdom. And it would be something like it was at the Garden of Eden. The earth would be restored and the people would be redeemed. By demonstrating his control over nature, Jesus confirms that he is the true Messiah. The storm also allowed Jesus to demonstrate his care and protection over those who are his. In 1 Peter 5, 7, we read, Cast your cares or your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. And know this, the one who cares for you is more than a good teacher. He's much more than a mighty prophet. He is God Almighty. He controls all the forces of nature, and he is the protector of his people. And nothing happens to you that is outside of his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't drown or suffer illness or that Christians don't die. We do, but not until it fits within the purpose of God. 
Sometimes it's in the purpose of God to stop the storm. Sometimes it's in his purpose to start the storm. Sometimes the storm comes to chasten. Sometimes the storm comes just to increase our faith. Jonah ended up in a storm because he was disobedient. If he'd gone to Nineveh uh, from the get-go, he wouldn't have encountered the storm. The disciples, on the other hand, got into a storm because they were obedient. Jesus said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And they said, okay. And because they were obedient, they got into a storm. So being in a storm doesn't necessarily mean you're disobedient. You can be in a storm that's just a storm. It's just part of life. And you can be in a storm that's a chastening storm, like Jonah was. You can also be in a storm that's a strengthening storm, like this storm that the disciples were in. The Lord brought the storm so that he could deliver them, giving them the opportunity for their faith to grow, for their ability to trust in him to increase. Whatever the storm, whatever the storm, the Lord is with you. One more point in verse 25. They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? It's a rhetorical question. They know the answer. Luke doesn't give us one because he knows none is needed. They were fearful and amazed. They were terrified of the storm, but now realizing that God is with them in the boat, their fear reaches new heights. Think about how frightening that must have been, how intimidating it had to be, how, how traumatizing, how put in your own adjective there. Think about how it would be to realize that the creator, the master of the universe, is sitting in the boat with you. When they set out across the lake that night, they thought they knew Jesus. They knew he was powerful. They knew he had helped and healed many people. When they got to the other side, they knew he was God. They knew that he had saved them. How about you? Do you think you know Jesus? Be sure you know the Jesus who controls the wind and the waves, the one who saves you in the storm. Well, next Luke takes us to the other side of the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Pick up in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out onto the land, a man from the city met him who was possessed with demons. And he had not put on clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but among the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what business do you have with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break the restraints and be driven out by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion because many demons had entered him. 
and they were begging him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many pigs feeding there on the mountain, and the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Critics have long pointed out that Luke says the Gerasenes, and Matthew says the country of the Gadarenes. Well, there's a very simple explanation for this apparent inconsistency. After the storm, the boats land near a small town called Garasa, and people from that immediate area, right around this little town, would be called Gerasenes. Further to the southeast is a much larger city called Gadara, and it's kind of the, the big city in the area, the region. And the people then in the region are called Gadarenes. So a person from Garasa could correctly be referred to as a Gerasene or a Gadarene. And this area was well known for having a lot of Gentiles living there. <clears throat> so it isn't surprising that we find pig farming going on there. Now, as soon as they get out of the boat, they're met by this wild man, a demon-possessed man. Uh, Luke and Mark only mention one man, while Matthew says that there were two of them. In all of the accounts, though, there's only interaction with the one man. And we just don't know what, it, what happened to the other fellow. But we do have a detailed description of this one demon-possessed wild man. And it is not a pretty picture. Before we look closer at our wild man, though, let's look at demon possession briefly. Now, along with the term demon-possessed, there are other ways that that's expressed in Scripture. We find things like having a demon, being demonized, possessing an unclean spirit, and being afflicted with unclean spirits. And basically, they all mean the same thing. Demon possession, and let's be clear here, demon possession is not a form of mental illness. It's an actual supernatural phenomenon in which a living being, a fallen angel, kicked out of heaven with Satan and who now works for Satan, literally takes over a person's mind and body. Their job, as it were, is to stop the purposes of God, to capture people's souls and inhibit the influence of the gospel on that person. They are personal, rational spirits. They're created beings that are ageless and as old as creation. They have vast knowledge and experience. Their intelligence and might are far superior to any human beings. They talk, they think, they plan, they plot. They cause physical ailments and torments along with incredible mental anguish. Now, a lot of questions popped into my head while I was studying this passage. And I'm guessing uh, many of you will have had or will have the same questions. Questions like, how do people become demon-possessed? Well, the short answer is I'm not sure. Um, but what I am sure of is that there are only two kingdoms in play in this world. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And it's populated by 
Christians, those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then there's the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan, populated by everybody else. And when I say ruled by Satan, that's within the limitations that God has set. Satan's minions, the demons, have their choice of who they can attack within that kingdom. Scripture suggests that idolatry, um, following pagan religions, delving into the occult, that these are all doorways that uh, let uh, demonic influence and even demons enter in. But there, there are other ways as well. Another question, can, can Christians be demon-possessed? No. Emphatic, no. Christians can be persecuted and attacked. Um, think of Ephesians 6, where Paul talks about the schemes of the devil and the fiery darts of the devil that we need to be protecting ourselves against. But we can't be possessed. Does demon possession occur today? Yes. Demon possession actually started with the fall. Although it isn't mentioned much in the Old Testament, there seems to be a lot in the Gospels, but that's because the very presence of Jesus draws the demons out of the shadows. They couldn't hide from him. And then after the ascension in Acts, we see a few more instances of of demon possession, but then there's nothing in the epistles. And then in Revelation, uh, John sees a crescendo of demonic activity in the end times. So it goes on around us, we just don't see it. Um, another question that pops up, does exorcism work? No, only Jesus and only those that he specifically said, you can go and cast out demons, they're the only ones that have that power. No one today has that. Um, I'm sure there are other questions, but let's get back to our story. So how did the demons afflict this man? First, we see his humiliation. Luke tells us he's naked, that he hasn't worn clothing in a long time. Imagine how cold he got in the winter. Imagine how sunburned he got in the summer. Um, we also see how isolated he is. No longer living at home, he's residing in the tombs, surrounded by the dead. And when he is around people, well, they bind him with chains and try and tie him up, but he breaks free, and the demons drive him into the desert, where, again, he's alone and isolated. Humiliated, isolated, he's also subjugated. He has no voice of his own, no control over his own body. He's constantly seized and controlled by these demons. And he's tortured and tormented. Mark describes how he runs around the tomb screaming and shrieking in anguish and how he gashes himself with stones. Isn't it a bit ironic that the very demons who are tormenting this wretched man cry out to Jesus and say, don't torment me, I beg you. Let's turn now to the interaction between Jesus and the demons. 
First, we note that the demons recognize Jesus as the son of the Most High God. And they so show submission by throwing the man on the ground at Jesus' feet. These demons were originally holy angels. They have vast knowledge of the personality of God and the Godhead. And they know exactly who Jesus is. Here we have demons testifying as to who this man is. They not only know who Jesus is, they know he is their ultimate master. He is sovereign. They're terrified of him and of what he can do to them. Don't torment me, I beg you. Their terror, though, is actually a comfort to us. Dale Davis explains it this way. It's as if as soon as Jesus comes, there's an invisible compulsion that propels these denizens of darkness to show submission to the sovereign they so intensely despise and to confess the truth of his supremacy. This leaves us in no doubt about how the so-called cosmic conflict will play out. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. Jesus asks, what is your name? And the demon replies, legion, for we are many. Legion refers to a Roman army unit that could consist of up to 6,000 men. Now, whether there were 1,000, 2,000, or 6,000 demons, this was a possession of epic proportions. If Satan and his demons could hold on to anyone, it has to be this guy, right? I mean, look at all the resources they've de devoted to this one guy. But with a word... Jesus commands the demons to come out, and they don't even argue. Luke gives us some further insight here in verse 31. The demons implore Jesus not to banish them into the abyss. The abyss is the same place referred to as the bottomless pit in Revelation. Now, only God can put demons there, and only God can release them. They are terrified of being sent there. And they know Jesus has the authority and the power to send them there. They certainly don't want to be sent to the abyss. But they also don't want to just wander around on the earth. They want to dwell in something. They know Jesus won't let them go into someone else. So they beg to go into the pigs. And Jesus allows them to. Well, why would he do that? Well, how do we know that the demons actually left the man? Well, Luke gives us a very clear evidence. He says, the pigs rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Mark tells us that there were at least 2,000 pigs in this herd. Now, pigs seldom rush anywhere. Well, except maybe to the trough. Um, and pigs are excellent swimmers. So something is going on with this herd. And that something was the demons. The demons affected the pigs much the same way they affected the man. And this was confirmation that the demons had actually left the man. And it's also vivid proof of Jesus' divine power. The text does leave us with some questions, though. 
how can animals be possessed? Why did Jesus allow the pigs to be used in this way? What happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? For these questions, the Bible just doesn't give us an answer. Well, what happens next? Follow along as we pick up in verse 34. Now, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported everything in the city and in the country. And the people came out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen everything reported to them how the man who had been demon-possessed had been made well. All the people of the territory of the Gerasenes and the surrounding region asked him to leave them because they were overwhelmed by great fear. And he got into a, a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city what great things Jesus had done for him. A lot of commentators and preachers have said that the people were upset over the loss of the pigs. Clearly, it must be against the law to kill somebody's pigs. Why would Jesus do, some, do this? How dare he? So obviously, the people came out to seek justice for the pigs. Well, neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke ever mention the owners of the pigs. There's no indication that any, in any of the accounts that they were upset by the loss of the pigs. Whole sermons have been preached, though, on preferring pigs over people or being materialistic over being spiritualistic. But nothing in this account says they focused on the pigs. Nothing in this account says they focused on the man or on the demons. They focused on Jesus. It was Jesus they came out to see. They came out to see Jesus because they were so stunned by the power of what they had heard. And when they came out to Jesus, they found the man. And the transformation was so total and so dramatic, it was literally the 180-degree opposite of what their experience had been. Instead of being naked, the man was clothed. Instead of wandering aimlessly, the man was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Instead of being in the tombs among the dead, he was sitting with Jesus and the disciples among the living. Instead of shrieking and screaming, the man was sitting quietly. Instead of being violent and threatening, he was peaceful. Instead of insanity, there was sanity. Instead of chaos, there was tranquility. What a magnificent picture of the transformation of salvation. Now, I believe there was a discussion between Jesus and this man that's not recorded for us, in which Jesus dealt with the sins of this man, in which forgiveness occurred. And the man was told the wonderful news that Jesus came for the poor and the prisoner, the blind and the oppressed, in order to give them riches and freedom and sight and deliverance. So when the people arrived, they saw this man transformed. 
not just delivered from demons, but sitting with Jesus and wanting to be led by him. He saw the power of the gospel. And their reaction? They became frightened. Seems like everyone in these passages ends up frightened, terrified in the presence of Jesus. But their reactions to that fear have been very different. The demons were terrified, but they were so filled with hatred of Jesus, so spiteful, so remorseless, that their reaction was simply to double down and try and carry on their campaign against God. The disciples were terrified when, Je when they saw Jesus as God, the God of creation. But in this fear, they were drawn to Jesus. And here we see the Gerasenes also terrified when they saw the power of Jesus. But instead of being drawn to him, they try and push him away. Their fear drove them away from him. Fear that drives people away from Jesus is a manifestation of the power of sin. The nature of sin is to blind. The nature of sin is to hate the truth. The nature of sin is to reject proof. The nature of sin is to resist righteousness and to cling fiercely to the love of the world. But here is irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the power of God. Here's a massive miracle that demonstrates his power over the physical and the spiritual, the supernatural. And it demonstrates his ability to save men from evil. They see this, and there's no argument. There's, there's no debate. There's no discussion. They know what has happened, and it terrifies them. But instead of saying, thank you for ridding us of all these demons, instead of asking, how can we experience the, the peace that this demonic man is, is now enjoying? Instead, they ask him to leave. David Gooding writes, what a sad comment on man's fallen and unregenerate state it is that man should feel more at home with demons than with the Christ who has power to cast them out. Men who would try to help a criminal or a drunkard or if they should prove incorrigible would want the one imprisoned and the other put into, into a hospital, find it embarrassing and somewhat frightening if that criminal or drunkard is saved by Christ and turned into a wholesome, regenerate disciple. So sadly, we see that Jesus grants their request. The wild man, we still don't know his name, pleads to accompany Jesus, and Jesus says, no. You see, Jesus had other plans for this man, just as Jesus has plans for you and for me. Even as Jesus left the area, never to return, he sent this man to be his witness, to be his evangelist. This maniac, Jesus, turns into a missionary. In the last verse of our passage, Luke provides one more testimony 
as to just who this man is. Jesus told the man, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Could it be any more clear? Jesus is God. Who is this man? At the macro level, we see that Jesus fulfills all the requirements of the Messiah, the true Son of God. He's the one who has the power to control nature, all of creation. He's the one who can restore the earth, reverse the curse. And we also see that he has the authority and the power to destroy the work of Satan and his minions. He has the ability to bind them for all eternity. He has complete control over the supernatural. Praise be to God that he is in control of the universe. But we spend most of our time at the more micro level, don't we? So I ask again, who is this man? This is the man who rescues his friends from the fiercest of storms, who protects them and sustains them. This is the man who saves a maniac that all others consider to be beyond help, not worth saving. As we close today, I hope that you have clearly seen that there is no storm in life that Jesus cannot calm, that he cannot rescue you from. There's no power that he cannot deliver you from. If he can free this wild man from thousands of demons and save him from his own sin, then he can deliver you. Now, perhaps you know someone who believes that there is a God, but can't believe that God would forgive them, let alone love them. Maybe they believe they've been so bad that there's no way God could accept them. You've got good news for them. If Jesus could restore the wild man, he can deal with anyone and with anything they may have done. Perhaps you know someone who knows that Jesus has forgiven their sins, but they still struggle with guilt. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, just how guilt-ridden this demon-possessed man must have been. He'd left his home, probably abandoning a family. He'd been violent, not only to himself, but to others. Who knows what harm he had inflicted. He'd tried to commit suicide. And who knows what else this wretched man has done. But Jesus didn't tell the man to go and feel guilty about the past. No, Jesus told the man to go and tell others what great things God had done for him. When God restores, there is no room for guilt. And that's good news. That's the gospel. Would you stand and pray with me? Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for these rich, rich portraits of Christ that we find painted in your word. Lord, we are so blessed to see the majesty of his power in stopping the storm and in his control of the demons. Lord, we're also blessed to see that our Lord needed to sleep. It just reinforces the humanity and how much he cares for us and understands us.
Lord, may we grasp the truth that our Savior is God, the creator, the controller of all creation. And may we grasp at the same time that he is the compassionate, the loving deliverer and rescuer of his people, that he is our protection, that he cares for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of worshiping you today. Thank you that we might serve you, our living, loving God. Would you go with us now? We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.